everything that I thought was appropriate and useful as a disciplinary approach was really blowing up in my face. So what is wrong? That's a horrible, horrible question to have to ask. But I think that's the problem that the label causes. The label tells us what adults around your child are feeling. They are feeling opposed and they are feeling defied. And they're saying that's not okay. And so that's why we call it ODD. It doesn't tell us anything about the child at all. Welcome to Tilt Parenting, a podcast featuring interviews and conversations aimed at inspiring, informing, and supporting parents raising differently wired kids. I'm your host, Debbie Reber. Before I introduce my guest and topic today, I have a quick announcement. And that is that the doors to my Differently Wired Club are open for new members for this week only, from today through Friday, September 25th. While I know that many of us love learning from podcasts and books and summits, including me, sometimes applying and integrating these strategies so we can truly transform our families can be difficult when we are just so consumed with getting through the day-to-day, especially in these unusual times of COVID-19. I created the Differently Wired Club to help parents do this deep work within a supportive community where we're all working toward the same goals. The club includes live coaching calls, virtual office hours, a monthly book club featuring guest appearances by authors of some of your favorite parenting books, monthly themes, a private community for connection and support, and more. So if this feels like the kind of support you could use right now, go to tiltparenting.com slash club to learn more. Okay, and now onto this week's episode. Today I'm covering a topic that is both new to the podcast and often shrouded in confusion and controversy, Oppositional Defiance Disorder, or ODD. To shed some light on this topic is my guest, Amelia Bowler, a writer, teacher, mother, and behavioral analyst with a master's degree in applied disability studies. ODD became personal for Amelia when her own son was diagnosed, and her quest for understanding, combined with her curiosity about the why of behavior, eventually led to her new book, The Parent's Guide to Oppositional Defiant Disorder, Your Questions Answered. I had a chance to review this book before it was published, and I found it to be an invaluable resource for parents trying to make sense of this diagnosis. Over the years, I have received many requests from listeners to do an episode on this topic, so I'm thrilled to finally be able to share this with you. In our conversation, Amelia explains what ODD is and what it isn't, how to better understand ODD in the context of behavioral and relational science, and many, many strategies and tips to support kids with this profile. What I especially appreciate is Amelia's vast understanding of the research combined with her passionate, empathetic, and relationship-centered approach. I hope you get a lot out of this conversation with Amelia. Hey, Amelia, welcome to the podcast. I am so excited to be here. You have no idea. (laughs) All right, listeners, I do know because she told me before I hit record. So really (laughs) excited that you're here as well. This is the first time I've done an episode in over 200 episodes on oppositional defiance disorder. And I think this is one of those. Well, we'll get into it, but there's just so much misinformation and myths about what this is. So I'm excited you're going to break it down for us. But before we get to that, can you take a few minutes just to more casually introduce yourself, tell us about who you are in the world and and your story. And actually, I'd love to know 
is part of that, how you came to even write this book. Oh, sure. Okay. Well, um, I'm Amelia Bowler. And when I was a kid, uh, they didn't really have a word for people like me, but my parents used the term severely gifted. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> like, I was clearly struggling. But, you know, she's so smart and she's doing great on all those standardized tests. So she's probably fine. She just needs to get organized. And I'm sure a large percentage of people who listen have had that same experience or they've seen that happen to their kids. Um, I think now you would call me a twice exceptional kid. Um, and I sort of grew into an adult who had no idea why she was so bad at her job and <laughs> couldn't write things down properly. And the only person in the office who was drinking hot chai and sour gummies to try to get through a day. <laughs> so um, I was diagnosed with ADHD and then the world started to make more sense. And I think that was partly when I started to get interested in psychiatric diagnosis and what we call things and what the, the process of labeling does to our lives. Um, I'd always been interested in challenging behavior, like being a kid who challenged people, having my own kid who, <laughs> who was just a champion at finding his way around everybody's gold standard. This is how I discipline. He would limbo under it or leap over it. <laughs> and so I knew, there, I knew that there was going to be more to understand about him. Um, and I also had this educational background as a teacher. So I really wanted to figure out what was it that would, like, I always imagined I was a teacher and I would create a classroom that was for people like me because I was so bored and so frustrated. And so I looked in all these different methods to see like, okay, well, what makes teaching efficient? I wasn't really satisfied with what I was getting in my educational degree. So I took a master's of applied disability study. And what that did was it gave me a background in what it's like to be disabled, which is an amazing way to look at the world. And it taught me a lot about myself. And it also um, focused on behavioral analysis, which is a relatively new sort of offshoot of psychology. And it really, really focuses on what are we seeing? Where is it coming from? Um, and I think that was a good foothold, but it definitely didn't tell me the whole story. So a lot of the work that I did for researching this book, <laughs> I just did because I was trying to figure out my own situation. And I started writing about it on my blog. And um, fortunately, a publisher at Jessica Kingsley saw it and said, would you like to write more about this? And I said, yes, yes, very much yes. Hmm. Oh, that's awesome. So, all right. And so you then wanted to tackle oppositional defiance disorder. And the name of your book is The Parent's Guide to Oppositional Defiance Disorder. I will just say that this was something I think that personally came on my radar during maybe the second neuropsych that we did with my son, Asher, maybe when he was eight, mm. might have even been earlier than that when it, it was, we were told that there were some defiant behaviors, just defiant disorder tendencies. But this idea of ODD being something that might be going on with my son. And I started looking it up and I was really unhappy with the information I found because it really felt like it was shaming me as a parent that this was something I had created in, in my child. And so what I would love for you to do as we start getting into this is just tell us what is ODD? You know, how would you define it? Because there are people who don't even think it's a real thing. Yes. Okay. Um, I think I had exactly the same reaction when I looked it up. Uh, the psychologist who were assessing my child said, 
you know, he does meet criteria for ODD, but we're not going to diagnose right now because there's no treatment that goes along with it, (laughs) aside from what we're doing for him with ADHD. And I thought, oh, that's super unhelpful. (laughs) And yes, I looked up all those Oh, look at all those articles in every conceivable publication asking me, well, to look back, like, hey, what did you do? Like, how did you screw this up? And I thought, I'm the person who's usually at the front of the room doing the parent training. Like, I understand what they mean by be firm, be consistent, you know, don't get into a coercive cycle. That's not happening. But everything that I thought was appropriate and useful as a disciplinary approach was really blowing up in my face. So what is wrong? That's a horrible, horrible question to have to ask. But I think that's the problem that the label causes. The label tells us what adults around your child are feeling. They are feeling opposed and they are feeling defied. And they're saying that's not okay. And so that's why we call it ODD. (laughs) It doesn't tell us anything about the child at all. Hmm. So... I guess as I was writing the book, I really wanted to understand. I think first I tried to understand, well, what about all those other kids who don't get this diagnosis? What's going on with them? Why did they go along with so many things that my kid seems to think is unacceptable and hard and horrible? Why is it easy for other kids? So I tried it on from that point of view and then started to dig as much as I could into the the scientific literature. What does this mean? Why does my son respond differently, for example, to something like a correction, like, oh, hey, but don't do that, or can you come back here? So I love the way that you said this is how the parents are experiencing this, that they're feeling opposed and they're feeling defied. I mean, that to me just really sums it up, doesn't it? Yeah, it wasn't talking about the child's areas of lagging skills. It was very focused on the conflict and the will that our child has or the way that they are not bending to ours. And that felt really strange to me. And this idea that, is it environmental? Um, Is it an actual diagnosis on its own? So Mm. can you actually answer that question? Is it in the DSM? Is it something that you can somewhat clearly check off symptoms that result in this diagnosis? Sure. Um, it is in the DSM-5, and it it is also in the IC-10, which is what the World Health Organization uses. So you might hear it outside of um, the US and Canada. But, and I think this is something that psychologists understand and maybe assume other people understand, it's what's called a behavioral diagnosis. So it's not something that you can look at a EEG or a CAT scan and say, okay, there it is. That's the part of the brain that we associate with this disorder you know, or we can't see a clear gene marker that says, yeah, it's it's definitely coming from this part. It's not a physiological difference. And it's not even clearly tied to an environment because you can have one child who has these oppositional defiant symptoms and three other kids in the same family who are doing fine. So clearly it's some kind of interaction between the environment and the child and the expectations that are being put on the child. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You pointed to something really important when you talked about the symptoms, because the symptoms are actually very, very broad. And the more I looked at it, like this was really interesting to me. Um, There are three different sections in the diagnosis. Uh, One section describes symptoms of irritability. They're using that word, meaning, you know, the child is annoyed with you or like easily frustrated, crying, um, sort of 
easily upset. The next section is about children who are headstrong. I hope you can hear the quotes around that. Um, <laughs> that is when you say, hey, let's do this. They say, no, thank you. I'd rather do that. And it's not so much an emotional conversation. It's just a struggle between how are we going to make this decision and who's going to make it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the third part is they use the word vindictive, which is pretty heavy label to put on a child as well. But I think what they're describing is um, a child who is hurt and upset and is directing that back at other people. Like, I feel like you hurt me. I'm going to hurt you or I'm going to show you how I feel. And this is how I'm going to show you. So because you don't have to have every single symptom, you could have one child who is very sensitive and easily upset. You could have another child who's sort of like a rhinoceros going through the day, making confident decisions that no one else agrees with. And these two very different children are being given the same label. So something's up. So what is up then? Yes. What is up? What is up with ODD? That should have been the name of my book. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I think what we've done is we've taken a bunch of children who have parents who feel the same way and we've put them in the same group and we've tried to study them and figure out what's the same about all of them. So unfortunately, what happens when you get a group that diverse you don't get any clear answers. You say, okay, some of these kids come from tough backgrounds where maybe they, their parents are poor, stressed, you know, there's domestic violence or abuse or just, you know, ongoing marital struggle in the home and something's going on and it's probably having an effect on the child here. You can take another group and say, well, these kids have learning differences. They have executive functioning deficits. They're not able to, you know, switch attention as easily as some other children Um, There's a huge overlap between an ADD and an ODD diagnosis, but there are kids who have ADD and no ODD symptoms and vice versa. So yeah, there's something going on over there. What I've tried to do in the book is give parents, okay, (laughs) almost like little filters, you know, those color filters where you put them all together and they look white and then you you take them out, you look at them one at a time, like red, green, blue. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to give parents a chance to look through these filters one at a time, because there are a lot of different situations that can create the same kind of the same looking symptoms. Well, any differently wired kid, right? We know that it's rarely one diagnosis, you know, (laughs) two symptoms, and here's what you do about it. Yeah, there's so much comorbidity between an overlap within ADHD and autism spectrum and profound giftedness, all those things overlap. And, you know, it's very complicated. So you mentioned ADHD and ODD, there's a lot of overlap. Do you see it with other neurodifferences as well that it's very common? Or can can a child, it sounds like what you said is a child may have just an ODD diagnosis, and that might be more the result of their environmental circumstances? Could be the relationships, you know, the way that people communicate with this child is very direct and very forceful and you better do it or else. And they've picked up those tactics and they're using them in ways where people are not expecting them to apply. It could also be that in a family system, everybody's so stressed that maybe some of the child's needs aren't being met and the child is really, really stressed as well. And that's going to lead to irritability and not wanting to follow some of the instructions. But sometimes it's not a want to or feel like. Sometimes it's honestly a can't. Mm -hmm. So I guess I'm jumping around. There are certainly 
habits and communication styles that can come across as oppositional defiant. There are certainly situations that can really stress out a child. Um, I think Mona Delahook was really great at uh, opening my eyes to some of this and how, how the neurology of stress works and how I need to keep that in mind rather than just focusing on logic and consequences. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm kind of embarrassed <laughs> that I didn't start out knowing that. Um, so lowering the stress level overall for the child, I mean, that could be so many different things as well. That could be sensory. That could be difficulty switching attention. So the whole world says it's music time and your brain is still completely absorbed in the task that you're doing right now. And it's uncomfortable to have to switch. So the child says, no, it's not personal. It's not like I refuse to do anything you say. It's just I really, really, really want to do this and not that. And while it might come easily to some other people to just say, okay, and to just give up on that whatever mission they were on, whatever desire they had, whatever need they had, some kids will just say, okay, even if their needs aren't met. But there are some kids who are just great at advocating for themselves. (laughs) That should be the name for your book, right? Great advocates. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Even just hearing you talk about this, and I and I read your book, I was lucky enough to get an advanced copy of it. I liked it so much, I gave it a blurb for the book. So And I I still find this very complicated. I still find this to be kind of muddy in places, this idea of ODD and and what does it mean if we get that diagnosis and what does it mean about us as parents and what does it mean for our kids? And it's complicated. And I want to throw in there too, there may be listeners who are thinking, what is the difference between ODD and PDA, pathological demand avoidance, which is something that, you know, I've had a couple of guests on the show talk about in the past year and seems to be gaining much more awareness in the US. So can you touch upon that specifically? Is there overlap between these two things? Because PDA is definitely a can't, not a won't kind of a situation. We'll be right back after this quick break. This year, I've been working on becoming more attuned to my body. And so I'm starting to really recognize how periodic spikes in anxiety or disruptions to my routines can seriously throw my whole system off. And as I've been traveling a ton this past month, which is both disruptive and somewhat stressful, I'm especially glad that I have the extra support of Symbiotic Plus, a three-in-one supplement from Ritual with clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. Symbiotic Plus provides fuel to the cells that make up the gut lining to support a healthy gut barrier. And it comes in this very cool minty delayed release capsule, which was specifically designed to help survive the harsh conditions of the upper GI tract for delivery to the colon. The bonus is that the capsules don't need to be refrigerated, so I can easily bring them with me in my carry-on. On a personal level, I love that Ritual is committed to sustainability. They're a female-founded B Corp, meaning they are holding themselves accountable long-term to not only think about their company's financial health, but also the health of people and our planet. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. Get 25% off your first month for limited time at ritual.com slash tilt. Start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash tilt for 25% off. Hey there, it's Debbie. I love making this show and sharing conversations about how to support our awesome neurodivergent kids. I've seen how even one little insight from an interview can spark a big shift in daily life. 
But I know that raising complex kids can be messy and lonely. And just when we think we figured it out, something comes up that boots us right back to feeling overwhelmed and stuck. That's why I've poured everything into creating a way for parents like us navigating complex parenting journeys to join together and chart a path that feels positive, hopeful, and doable. It's the brand new Differently Wired Club experience. In the club, you'll get personal support from me and other seasoned parent coaches, six live calls every month where you can connect and get your personal questions answered, the opportunity to learn directly from authors and experts like I have on this show, monthly themes for getting specific and tactical, an exclusive private podcast feed, and the best, most generous community of parents. Seriously, these folks show up for themselves and each other, and that right there is really everything. Because it's a daily reminder that we're not alone. Our kids aren't broken, and we have totally got this. The recently rebooted Differently Wired Club is on a brand new platform with its very own iOS and Android app. It is such a great space. However you learn, whatever your style, no matter the ages, genders, and neurodivergent profile of your children, the Differently Wired Club can help you cultivate the positive shifts you're hoping for. Join us today by going to tiltparenting.com slash club. That's tiltparenting.com slash club. I hope to see you on the inside. The research that I've done on PDA is not very deep. And unfortunately, there's not a huge body of research on it right now because it isn't in the DSM, as far as I know, like because it, it hasn't been updated in a few years. And some people would even call it a facet of autism spectrum disorder. So I don't know how many kids will be getting that diagnosis. And yeah, they, it could be labeled in exactly the same way. And it'd be, it could be coming from a totally different direction. So I didn't cover that in the book, Pathological Demand Avoidance. But certainly, you could look at a child who's struggling in that way and just say they're being defiant. Mm-hmm. Um, to try to untangle it a little bit, the strands that we're really looking at are, as a parent, am I finding the resources to be okay, to have a feeling of safety within myself so that when I communicate with my child, I communicate that in a way that makes them feel safe? Am I together enough that I can see what's happening in front of me instead of rigidly trying to push through the thing that I think needs to happen? Am I engaged? Am I present? So that's really the first section. You may be struggling with that because your child is struggling in lots of other ways. So it's never just like your fault as a parent, but that's something that really has to to get fortified. Like you got to get mega vitamins in your (laughs) self-regulation so that you can deal with these other strands. I love that because I think that's where it starts for us as parents of any differently wired child. We have to fortify ourselves. We have to have like our our emotional regulation vitamins, whatever you want to call it. Um, (laughs) We need to do that work on ourselves in order for us to show up for who our kids are. So it sounds like with a child who has oppositional defiance disorder, whether they're diagnosed with that officially, they have that label or they have those tendencies that this is even more critical to start with. Oh, yeah. Um, I read one really cool study. I think it was by Dr. Russell Barkley, who was studying um, mom's behavior with kids who have ADHD on and off their medication. So they, he sort of used the kids as their own control group. And when they were off their medication, they were less compliant. And so what he measured was <laughs> how mom is reacting. And it was actually a lot easier for the children to change the parent's behavior than it was for the parent to change the child's behavior. Like, we really got to keep our hands on the steering wheel. 
because it's tough. It is tough. And it is a cycle, right? It's like this loop. And once we get on, it's really hard to get untangled from that. Yeah. And I guess I should specify, I mean, our own personal steering wheel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I never say kids with oppositional defiant disorder, because I just don't feel like I have the right to say that because I have I really question the value of that diagnosis. But I will say kids diagnosed with ODD, or kids who have oppositional defiant behavior. Oftentimes, we're trying to keep our hands on their steering wheel. <laughs> and mm-hmm. We're going for a crazy ride. Mm-hmm. So I just wanted to make that distinction. Yeah, no, I like that. And I want to hear more about what we can do, like what parents can do. Absolutely. Okay. So I guess if we're going to use driving as a metaphor, the second chapter is really about the signals. Like, are we giving clear signals? Like our kid is in the driver's seat. (laughs) They're going where they want to go. Are we signaling like this is a great way to go? This is a safe way to go. Here, come along with me. Or, you know, you really need to stop going over there. It's very dangerous over there. The way we signal will affect our child. And and that's just the way we speak to them. It's the routines that we have, the expectations. You know, when there's a flood and all the lights go out, like in some families, a feeling of crisis can do that. It can just, all bets are off. One thing's okay today, not okay tomorrow. It's confusing. You know, isn't it strange how sometimes it just takes so much longer to get anywhere when when the usual traffic lights are are disrupted? Mm-hmm. Um. In this chapter, I also talk about how to have that positive relationship, how to have that engaged relationship. It was surprisingly difficult to hear that described in the literature, but I think John Gottman does a beautiful job of it when he describes emotion coaching. Um, And he's done some really nice research to demonstrate when you see a group of parents and you measure the way they're they're present and engaged and, and validating their kids' feelings and setting boundaries and coaching their kids, basically. Um, you do get different outcomes versus parents who are dismissing, who are being sarcastic, who are minimizing their kids' experience and being over-controlling. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, you can never set up an experimental condition <laughs> where you right. tell parents <laughs> to do the wrong thing, but he's he's such a dedicated researcher that I think he's he's really done a great job of of establishing what it looks like, uh, like where we should be aiming in our warm communication, also having, you know, standards and expectations. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, it's respectful, right? It's respectful yeah. communication, respectful parenting. And we can still have boundaries. And when we do that, but it is, yeah, I can see how with the child who is more defiant that having that sticking with that top down approach, my way or the highway kind of thing is just going to further entrench them. Yes, absolutely. Because I think sometimes it's not just a question of, am I incentivizing one behavior or another? Am I punishing one behavior or another? You've also got a child who's got an emotional life, who's got beliefs, who's got thoughts that they're not sharing with you. So it's not just a question of like putting the cheese in the maze and, you know, getting the route that you want. If we're, we're not driving our children's behavior like that. It's much more of a relationship. So I mm-hmm. wanted to focus on that next. Mm-hmm. Um. In other places in the book, I talk about where a child's intellectual struggles might come into play, because you might have this wonderful, warm relationship. You might be really clearly signaling, and you say it's time for dinner, and suddenly there's tears and rolling under the couch, and no, no, no. And, well, what's going on? Like, we always have dinner. (laughs) This is is strange. (laughs) Um, And in my work as a behavior consultant, I've, I've been lucky enough to sort of 
work with these families and and see how sometimes for children, and this is not necessarily what you would call an intellectual disability, but kids may have trouble planning ahead or anticipating what's going to happen next. They may have trouble when you say five more minutes, they may have no idea what that means. And this is not just for like exceptional kids. This could be for all kinds. So how do we communicate in a way that is going to make sense to our kids, especially if they're easily overwhelmed? Maybe we've given them a ta- like a list of five things to do and they don't even know how to get started on one. So they say, no, I can't. It's too hard. That's not defiance. That's just difficulty with short-term memory. Mm-hmm. So I looked at the research um, because it's really not fair to say one way or another, okay, he has ODD and so he has a brain disorder. Somebody did something wrong when he was in the womb. That's really, really not fair. But it could be that some parts of their thinking, planning, managing are feeling overwhelmed, are kind of short-circuiting. And sometimes that looks like a big emotional outburst. So you might say this child has an emotion problem, but in fact, it's the way they're thinking about the problem that's just not able to keep up with what you're expecting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes total sense. And also just to go back to something you said earlier, I love that you just called out that our children have emotional lives of their own. And I think Mm. that's something we often forget, you know, just hearing you say it like that. It's like, yes, they are their own people. They have their own internal dialogue, their own belief systems, their own emotional life. And when we forget that, that's when we run into trouble, right? Mm. But that's that really comes from us and the expectations that we put on ourselves. Dana Abraham from Calm the Chaos, she, I think, really shines a light on this in her work, um, helping parents understand what expectations they're bringing to the table, what parts of their family and history and culture shape what they think their kids should be. So I've been called out a few times on that and, and really been hard on myself. Like, you're a teacher, you're a behavior analyst, you should be listening to you. Why do you let him do that? So my desire to control my kid is not necessarily because I'm some kind of power freak, but I just feel like I'm failing if I don't do this. Mm-hmm. So yeah. letting myself off the hook um, and having different expectations of myself has been, well, a relief for everybody, I think. Mm-hmm. For sure. Some of the most important work I did, absolutely, especially as a type A person who's used to being really good at stuff, you know, to then have a child who's got their own plan and is not making you feel like you're doing a good job, that can be very triggering. Yeah. Sometimes I say like, even when it hurts, I'll say, I'll try to say it in a funny way. Like, well, I got some, uh, got some frank feedback this morning. I got a zero star Yelp review from my child. (laughs) Yep. Been there. Yes. So, all right. So we've talked about, first of all, this, just for listeners, this part two of Amelia's book is addressing challenging behaviors from the inside out. And so that's what she's, she's walking us through. So these different ways to support our kids. So what else can you share with us specifically about how we can better understand and support that the emotional regulation skill development in our kids? Like, what do they actually need to work through this and to better be able to cope with the demands being placed on them? Yeah, this was something that I did have to look deeply at because I wasn't familiar with the research. Um, But it is so connected to my ability to self-regulate, my ability to maintain my relationship with my child, even when he's telling me everything I'm doing is wrong. (laughs) I still have to show up for him. Mm -hmm. 
And actually, that is half the job, is modeling that, modeling the empathetic listening. That's how he learns to be empathetic with himself. That's how he learns how to be empathetic with other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and that can happen in about a month's time then. This is a... <laughs> No, I just, <laughs> sarcasm. Um, I always like to kind of lay out for listeners what they can expect, because what I know, having been the parent of a, of a child who was defiant and very emotionally dysregulated, that I wanted answers and I wanted to know how to stop the behavior, how to get things moving in a different direction And it took a lot longer than what I had hoped for. And so can you kind of lay out what this even looks like, what what we can expect if we're starting to really consider changing how we parent our our child who has ODD tendencies? Sure, absolutely. Um, Well, I mean, this was scary for me as somebody who had never like looked at emotion from a scientific perspective before, because there's a lot of controversy about it. But I think what's understood is that there are things around us that will trigger us, that will give us an immediately physical response. Um, For example, you see a mouse in the corner of your kitchen and your heart starts pounding right away. You have this huge emotional reaction and then you start thinking about it, maybe rationally, like, oh yeah, that's, that's actually not a mouse, that's my kid's hamster. And you make decisions about whether it's a threat or not. This is really where our kids start. They're walking around having physical reactions to their environment. They have no idea what they mean, and they don't know how to interpret it to themselves. So sometimes we're helping the kids, A, identify, yeah, you're having a big reaction right now, and I know it feels really scary. Let's figure out together if this is something that we need to be very scared about. Um, And it obviously doesn't happen by rote, but I guess I'm trying to emphasize that that emotional self-regulation is a very long and complicated process. And that's really the first step is right now, your child might be reacting to everything like it's a threat. It might be a look on your face. It might be a tone of your voice that feels threatening. And there's this huge stress reaction. You say, whoa, where did that come from? So really patiently observing those triggers. Sometimes they're going to be right there. Like they happened just one second ago. Sometimes they're going to build up over time. So if I can if I can try to say something useful, when you're really at the end of one of those tornado days, if you sit down and just write and like pretend you're writing to your most awesome friend or, you know, write in a group of people who really deeply understand, just map out like, well, what happened? I said this and he said this and then we did this and that seemed to work. When we look at it in retrospect, sometimes we can untie some of those knots. Sometimes our memory starts to fill in some of the blanks that we had when we were just reacting to the situation. We go, oh, yeah, he didn't start that until his brother came in. Maybe it's something to do with this. Oh, yeah, it started about 4.30, but he hadn't eaten for three hours. We can start to see those triggers in our child's environment, but it's so hard to see them if we're reacting to ourselves, when we're reacting to our kids. We really need to do a debrief sometimes to see some of those really subtle things. Yeah. I love that. And I think it's such worthwhile work to do is to take the time. And I, and I've had, you know, parent coaches and therapists tell me in the past, like start keeping a journal of the regressions or start noticing, you know, what's happening. And it seemed like just too much work to do. Honestly, (laughs) I was like, really? Like you want me to start 
like, I'm just happy to be surviving today. And now we've got to write about it too. But it can be so helpful because as you said, there's always a reason. And we can start to, when we get a little distance from it, we can start to find those connections. Yeah. And and our goal is not to make them stop crying or make them do what we want. Our goal is really to figure out, okay, where did that start? How can I help you handle that thing so we can do what's important to both of us? And I can't emphasize that enough because sometimes we really feel like, well, if I don't just get out of this situation as soon as possible, the world's over. Like we're panicking. That's It's so easy to flip out and to assume, well, this is my future now. If I don't handle this today with the biggest consequence I could think of, then I failed as a human being. Right. So one thing that our kids uh, who are diagnosed with ODD often have in common is impulse control. So maybe we're all having the same emotions, but the kid who's diagnosed with ODD is the one who's telling you about all of them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're Like the volume is turned up. Um, and when they're told to stop, it's harder for them to stop. And this is something that has been borne out in the research as well. There's there's some really cool tests where you can put kids together and and test their ability to just put the brakes on. Oh, like, oh, that's not going to pay off. Stop doing that. It'll take longer for some kids. They will persist. And, they, you know, you can test it with video games. How many more times will they press the button? <laughs> but that helps me a lot as a parent. Because... It might not be my child's like moral character that they said, shut up to me eight more times <laughs> than I was expecting them mm-hmm. to. Or it might not be my failing as a parent that I didn't give the right reaction. It could be that when my child is in this emotional state, it is so, so, so hard for him to stop. Mm-hmm. But fortunately, the best thing that we know while our kids' brains are growing and changing is to use practice. like. When it's your first day on the job, they don't throw you in and say, like, yell instructions over your shoulder. And that's often what we do with our kids. <laughs> we, we have great advice for them, but we expect them to use the advice in the moment. And they're paying attention to so many other things. It makes sense to me, right? Come on, this yeah. is good advice I'm giving sure, you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm basically, yeah, I'm closed captioning your life. Yeah. But... If your child has difficulty with impulse control, the best possible override is a response that's been practiced. And the best way to do that is training in those lower pressure situations. And what we know about some kids who are diagnosed with ODD, with or without ADD, is that although they may have great planning skills and they may have like, you test them on their executive functioning when they're in a good mood, totally fine. If you play a game with them and they lose repeatedly, you test them again, they're doing way worse than the other kids. Their ability to self-regulate has just gone through the floor. And it's tough because these are the kids who are being diagnosed alongside other kids who have problems every minute of the day, and we can't tell them apart when we read the research. So we just really have to go through these things one at a time. But the best way that we know to help your child come up with the right reaction in the moment is to practice, 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 play, use puppets if you need to, send text messages to each other, practicing, like script it if you need to. We all have scripts. Parent training is full of scripts. We practice scripts with Mm -hmm. each other so that Mm -hmm. we'll know what to say when our hearts are racing and we're sweating because this is a messy situation. And so that's a great thing to be able to offer our kids. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we used to do a lot of role playing, you know, just like, okay, what's it going to look like when I call you to dinner? 
let's practice it once and see how it goes. And mm-hmm. that was very helpful. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we, we do it as adults. And, and I think that I think that when kids are following a plan that they've made ahead of time, it's much easier to say no to those little distractions, those little impulses. We'll be right back after this quick break. I'm Margaret. And I'm Amy. And together we host the podcast, What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. Margaret, I would say you're sort of a where are my keys kind of mom. Correct. Sometimes a where are my kids kind of mom. (laughs) Well, you're Amy more of a we were supposed to leave 35 seconds ago, mom. I mean, touche. In each episode of What Fresh Hell, we come at a topic from our usually completely opposite perspectives. I bring the research. And I bring kind of the gimlet eye. Like, is that research really going to work, people? And almost 10 million downloads later, we're still laughing. We also talk to experts in the parenting field, plus parents with stories we can all learn from. We make each other laugh, we challenge each other's assumptions, and we have what we think is the best parenting community on the internet. Check out What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood wherever you listen to podcasts. Are you overwhelmed by the things that get in the way of you doing what you want to do? Are you looking for ways to simplify life to better align with your values? Do you want to create space in your schedule so you have room for more of the good stuff? Play, joy, relationships, gratitude, and more? If you answered yes to any of these questions, I invite you to check out Edit Your Life, a podcast to help you edit the unnecessary from your life so you have more room to enjoy the awesome. Through episodes with me, Christine Coe, and a range of super smart, compassionate, and thoughtful guests, You'll come away with big picture insights and practical ways to declutter your home, schedule, and mental space without getting bogged down by perfection. I have always believed that small moments and actions matter tremendously. My goal is to help you find agency and space in your life through doable baby steps that will leave you feeling accomplished instead of overwhelmed. Check out Edit Your Life wherever you enjoy your podcasts. So, all right, I want to, I have two questions I want to get to. One is, can you give us a sense or give parents, maybe I'm asking for some hope, but a sense of the trajectory. So if a parent has a child who's been identified as being defiant, um, as potentially having this label of ODD, is it something that with all these methods or, you know, all of these support systems and the work that we do as parents is this something that our kids can, you know, I don't know if outgrow is the right word, but can, you know, this can change. Right. Um, there are very few adults who do have a diagnosis of ODD. And I think <laughs> that's largely because those of us who are rebellious and don't enjoy taking instructions, start our own businesses. <laughs> or mm-hmm. we, you know, we get a podcast where we make people listen to us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we find our way to make our voices heard. And we, we find our niche and we can avoid doing the things that we hate doing that everybody expects us to do. So in a sense, life will change around your child and they will find ways to be more comfortable. In an important sense, maturity helps in all of these areas. Mm-hmm. Um, just the, the brain development is bound to help with emotional self-regulation, executive functioning, relationships. We, we learn every day. That's good news. When you look at the research, you may not see such great news, but unfortunately, that's because we've taken a pile of kids with a bunch of different struggles and we've given every one of them the same exact treatment. And we've said, oh, 
it's weird. Only 40% of them got better. (laughs) Yeah. Only 40% of them had the struggle that you were trying to address. So even if the, the research is sometimes a little bit like, uh, not super encouraging, I do think that as we grow, um, as a culture, and as the, the the field of psychiatry grows, we'll be able to give a diagnosis that really points parents in the right direction. Like, oh, I see that you're having a difficulty with a coercive cycle. You're threatening. Your child is threatening. Here's a program that will help you de-escalate in these emotional situations and stop using pressure tactics on each other. Great, wonderful. Um, maybe another child with a diagnosis will be given counseling to deal with anxiety because they're saying no because everything feels wrong and scary so with the right treatment i have so much hope and every family i meet like it's just such an honor to work with people like the love parents have for their kids just overwhelms me and gives me goosebumps every day um so i believe that parents who are well equipped can absolutely walk with their children through this yeah there's a lot of stuff out there that works i just think that we've been we've been giving bad advice and sending people in the wrong direction for a long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I love that walk with your children through this because again, it comes back to relationship and connection always with mm-hmm. our kids and understanding who they are and being fluent in them and, and ourselves. So it is deep work, but I see that you can move through it and get to the other side. So one last question. I just wanted to circle back because you talked about you question the benefits, perhaps, of the label itself. Mm-hmm. Can you say a little bit more about that? Is it something, I just would love to know your thoughts on that. Okay. Well, would I want to have a diagnosis of oppositional defiant disorder? Personally, at this moment in my life, I would say I don't wish that on my son right now, because it's something that could be misunderstood by other people. I mean, there's already enough in his file at school. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want it to signal to people like this is a kid that you should give up on. It does sound like a period at the end of a sentence. It's really not. It's what we're seeing right now. And there's lots of other ways to describe that. On the other hand, if you're in a situation where you would like to have counseling, you would like to have different kinds of social skills programs because, you know, making friends can be hard for kids who are not always very flexible. You may have to call it something to get your insurance to cover it. So in that case, I would say absolutely go for it, but it's not something that helps other people understand what your child is struggling with easily at this point until everyone reads my book and then we're good. Yeah, it's so true. It is one of those labels that is just like, I mean, even those of us working in this space, we don't even really understand what it is. And it is so negative. Like there's no way you can hear oppositional defiant disorder and think, awesome, that has a lot of cool gifts. Yeah, you no know? parent, no teacher is like, wow, I'm so excited. I have three ODD kids in my class. This yeah, year. it's really tricky and complicated. So that's why I, you know, I think that the book you've written and that you are out there trying to demystify what ODD is and to create more understanding is so important. So thank you, first of all, for writing the book. Thank you for coming and talking with us about it today. I have a feeling there's going to be more questions about this. So we may have to do a part two. I'll be very curious to hear what the feedback is from the community on the Facebook group. But before we go, could you tell listeners how they can learn more about you and connect with you? 
Well, yes. And thank you so much for helping me get this message out. I've been yelling at it in a room for a long time, (laughs) but it's really nice to have other people going, yeah, we agree with that. We needed to hear that. Um, If you want to find me, my website is ameliabowler.com. I'm on Facebook. I have a little page where I post my artwork. So that's called Creative Connected Parenting. Um, Yeah, I post my paintings and I, I share things with people on Instagram. So hopefully you'll be able to find me there too. And I'm so excited to hear what people's questions are. I will never stop being curious about this. And I'm happy to give you any amount of time to talk about it in the future. Oh, that's awesome. Thank you. And listeners, I will include links, of course, to Amelia's uh, social media handles and and information in the book on the show notes page. And then I'm just thinking, I'm trying to do a little, some more Facebook lives on the Tilt Together group. So let's talk about maybe bringing you in to do one of those and and taking people's questions. So listeners, if you if you want me to do that, um, let me know as well. Shoot me an email and um, we'll see if we can make it happen. Um, Amelia, thank you so much. It was really lovely to connect with you. Again, the book, everyone, is called The Parent's Guide to Oppositional Defiant Disorder, Your Questions Answered. And yeah, I really appreciated you sharing all this with us today. Oh, this conversation has made me so happy. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Tilt Parenting Podcast. For the show notes for this episode, visit tiltparenting.com slash podcast and search for this conversation. If you like what you heard on today's episode, I would be grateful if you could take a minute to head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a rating or a review. Thank you so much for helping us stay visible so people who would benefit from the show can easily find it. If you want to support the show and help me cover the cost of production, please consider joining my Patreon campaign. To support the show, just visit patreon.com slash tilt parenting. Lastly, if you aren't already part of the online community at Tilt, I invite you to sign up at tiltparenting.com on the box in the bottom where it says join the revolution. Every Thursday, I send out a short email with a quick note for me, a link to that week's podcast episode, and links to five stories from the news that week that are relevant to parents like us. Again, you can sign up and learn more about Tilt at www.tiltparenting.com. When it comes to raising kids, there's so much to consider. Things like, what do we feed them? When do we feed them? How do they sleep? What does it look like to raise kind kids? How does their nervous system work? How do I keep myself calm? What are my triggers? There's so much that comes into play. And we are distilling all of that information for you at Voices of Your Village podcast, where we bring experts in the field of early childhood and education and psychology and across the board so that you don't have to comb the internet for information. You get to show up and hang out and have shame-free, judgment-free conversations and insights into what it looks like to raise kind, empathetic, emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Alyssa Blask Campbell. I have a master's degree in early childhood education. I'm a mom of two, and I am walking this journey right alongside you doing this work. Come hang out with me at Voices of Your Village, and we can dive into real conversations with actionable tips.